Greetings and welcome to the Wizard in the Wild podcast. I'm joined today by a very dear friend of mine, Shannon Ravel. I've known Shannon for, I mean, maybe 10 years now. We actually met before both becoming barristers. We were in mooting competitions, which we might talk about a bit later. We then met at a scholar's dinner and then we've never really looked back from there. Shannon, welcome. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Oh my God, it's been so long. Like I just, oh, Jesus. I know, time flies. You know, it's very, it's really weird. I was in Dubai for work this week and with Chambers and I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen people since really before COVID. And it was just the weirdest thing because no one's really aged no one's really changed. <laughs> Dynamics are still the same. It was like time travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't it mad that we met before bar school as well? I always I forget that period of time, partly because in those um, mooting competitions, you were smashing it and got through to the final. <laughs> I think I got kicked out in the first round. I was like, I'm never going to be a barrister. Like, I can't even get through the, like, the basics. And I remember seeing you and being like, oh, she's really good. And she's in the oh, final. So she's sweet. like smashing it. <laughs> but then, I... we were to, then we moved it together, which I loved. We were a really good I team. mean, those days, those days were an absolute dream, weren't they? You know, <laughs> meeting up, writing each other little notes in the bundle. So, I you know, know. Like you would write me a little <laughs> note, like you're going to smash it. And I'd like open it. We're standing in front of a court of appeal judge. I was like... Oh, I've got a little heart from Emily. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It was, I mean, it's so, I find it amazing because when I think of how I felt back then and the doubts that we had, and I mean, it already felt like such an achievement to have made it that far at that stage. Mm. And to yeah, look absolutely. back now, you know, because I mean, it really was, it, it was, that was what, 2014? 2013, 2014, that that was all happening. 2013, 2014. Yeah, and then, you know, look at you now. I I remember sitting, having an ice cream with you in Lincoln's Inn Fields. I'm always eating ice cream, it's a problem. And I I said to you, I was like, I'm just going to go there for a minute, but what if we don't make it? And you looked at me, you were like, absolutely no way. We are not having that discussion. We are not having this conversation. Mm. And I was like, yeah, but there's me and you. That's two of us. And statistically, probably both of us aren't going to become barristers. Before I even finished my sentence, you were like, right, shut up. That's enough now. <laughs> we are not having that sort of energy in our friendship. And mm. I mean, you know, there we were on call day, both standing together. I know, it's so. amazing. And all the pictures and... Uh, I actually have the biggest smile on my face because I think we really do forget sometimes to look back Mm -hmm. and just appreciate like the growth. I mean, not just professionally, but personally, emotionally, you know, know. always the resilience, frankly. And I think that is actually one of your key strengths. And I would say mine as well, actually. I think that's what, you know, the reason that was never an option to not make it was also because in a way, I think life before then everything else like yes statistics whatever but actually life before then was so much harder and the things on a personal level that were overcome were just so much more severe and so you know you just yeah it's so lovely to have a reminder of how far we've come because you forget don't you in your everyday Mm. life you just take everything for granted and you're just like oh you know 
um, I've got this to do and that to do and you get bogged down in all the stresses and whatever and to just sit down and be like oh remember when we didn't even know whether we were going to make it this far and we did mm. and it's mm. nice to remember that sometimes because absolutely you know at the moment as well I'm I really feel like I'm surrounded by female greatness everywhere so many of my friends are just absolutely smashing it and it's so lovely to be surrounded by people who are positive and you know really making moves and I do think that this year as well especially I just feel like post-pandemic so many of my female friends have taken steps that are just you know winning and it's lovely to see I absolutely so love empowering. being surrounded by it yeah absolutely so what would what has your because it's funny I always think of September as really being the new year I'm quite mm. I always thought, you know, the start of the school term or the start of, and it's funny because, you know, legal terms actually follow school terms in that sense. And so, you know, we started our training in an, in October, it kind of goes October to October or September to September. When you look back at this last year, what is your biggest achievement, area of growth, lesson learnt? I think actually the biggest achievement and growth lesson learned that I have had was moving out of my old flat and into my new flat, which involved, I think oh. I muted myself. Yeah, there, there we go. Which involved. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so 31, it's unreal. My technology is so bad. Honestly, just diverting <laughs> off topic for a moment. Last week, I was about to sign into a prison visit online with a client and do a a virtual court hearing Mm. and my Mac was just screwing up left right and center like it just wasn't working everything was going slowly and I was like oh I'm gonna have to switch to my Windows laptop and um I've never been able to get the camera to work on my Windows and you have to show ID for a prison visit so I was like oh I'm gonna have to deal with this and I was like you know what I'm just gonna have to find out how to make it work so I started googling right on a Lenovo laptop how do you switch the camera on (laughs) And um, step one is open the shutter across the camera. (laughs) I was like, oh, my God. The amount of court hearings I've logged into from this laptop and been like, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I'm just going to have to be a blank screen because my camera doesn't work when, in fact, I hadn't opened the fucking shutter on the camera. That's so funny. We should actually say for anyone who's listening... (laughs) Um, Shannon is a criminal barrister and an incredible one at that so we actually although we have the same job description in terms of being a barrister we have totally different jobs in terms of you know what we do day to day our client the kind of law we engage with and I would say that actually what you do is a lot more real and human I feel like I deal with people which I like I Mm. like dealing with people have you been striking I mean, I don't know if you want to talk, have, allowed to talk about it. You have, yeah. I have. I mean, I don't want to go into it too much because it's just, I'm so sick of the whole mm. situation. I mm. have been striking. I've broken strike for a couple of cases where my clients have been vulnerable, good character in custody, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, but it's it's a bad time for the criminal bar right now. And that's all I really want to say on the point because yeah. it's just too much. It's just too much. And I feel like I've had to really vamp up my private time to deal mm. with the professional impact and the 
sort of emotional impact of the strike and the, the emotional drain. Yeah. Mm. Well, that brings us um, quite, quite nicely back to you were saying that you've moved out of your flat. I moved out of my flat. I left my ex-partner, which was very difficult. Mm. And it was, it's weird. It's like, um, it's almost like, you know, when there's a really annoying noise in the background and you don't even notice it until you turn it off. (laughs) (laughs) It's literally what I've just been through. I just suddenly I'm having nights full of sleep. I'm resting. I'm drinking more water, which I think, I generally think as a life principle, if something's looking really difficult, drink more water and have a nap is generally mm. how to deal with the whole Quite situation. <laughs> but I remember you um, texting me saying that you had, because what I found quite interesting in the psychology behind it was before you actually moved in with him, you or, or right at the time that you moved in, you became aware of things mm. that were kind of still the same problem a year later and were, I don't actually know what they were and you don't have to say, but things that were clearly a big deal to you. So it was... It was very strange because I sort of approached the situation as we're moving in together, we're going to get married, we're going to have kids, we'd spoken about all of that. And you get excited for like the start of the next phase of your life. And I think what happened was we we moved in together and six days later, I found out all sorts of stuff about cheating and drugs and he had a child I didn't know about. Like it was oh my it was like somebody just hit me with a fucking bus, basically. Wow. And it was almost like I was so reluctant to let go of what I was ready for my life to be mm. that I just stayed. And I just stayed mm. for like a year because I was so insistent that you know, I went from being so excited a thousand percent to below zero so quickly mm. that I just could, I couldn't let go of this idea that I was ready to start my life. And all my friends from home back in Cambridge, you know, um, have had children or getting married or like settling down. Mm. And I think a bit of me was like, I refuse to let go of my settling down. And it was so mad that what I ended up doing was suffocating myself in this situation for a whole year where Mm. on the outside I was going on holidays and happy and doing all this stuff. But when I was running or driving or doing an activity on my own, I was judging myself. I was like, oh, my God, you are fucking neglecting your own personal self for Mm. the sake of this idea, you know. And um, yeah, that was painful. It was really painful for a long time. And then leaving that situation, I think is bigger than any professional accomplishment I've had. And I've, I've had some, I mean, I'm very proud of where I am at work right now. But I think dealing with your own self, pulling yourself in line and being like, look, this situation is not good enough for you. Here's what mm. to do about it can sometimes take a lot more than just switching it off. And I think it's also the sheer shock because what you said really struck a chord with me because my, I mean, it's slightly different, but um, my dad has another kid, which I didn't know about. And yeah. Did you not know this story? No. Oh my gosh. I know this story, Emily. Mental. Well, let's tell the story. So 
I think that's the thing is that you always think you know your partner and you always think you know your parents. And especially if you're, as you said, you're planning on marrying someone, moving in with them, you know, you just assume that there's honesty. And I think it's challenging because on, on the one hand, I do think we all are allowed, deserve, need our kind of personal secret garden. And there are some things you might never want to share. But if it's an active part of your life or something that would impact the relationship, I think there is a duty, a duty to share. Anyway, so when I was um, at university, it was my first year of law school. And I remember, so my parents had been divorced for a while. I should say that there was, you know, it was nothing kind of untoward. It wasn't like a secret family. Although I did have a friend whose parents had a secret family. He was actually the secret family. Wild. Anyway, that's no, no, it's crazy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So he, this was actually insane. He was, his father basically had his first family who were, you know, the kind of the, the known ones. And then the, it, my friend's mum was basically the, the mistress. But I don't know if mistress is a fair enough term because it had gone on for so many years. And mm. they were a family unit, but just, yeah, wild, basically. But I, that's not really my story to tell, so I'll, I'll leave it there. My own story was that it was the night before my first year law exams and I was procrastinating, as you do, and I opened up Facebook <laughs> and, you know, Facebook used to have, well, actually, I think it still does, the kind of message request section. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. I saw this little notification, like you have one message request. And so I opened it and I think, it, and it's so funny about timing because I think it was a few days old, but I hadn't noticed it until that day. And I open it because I, I saw reference to my dad's name in the, in the top line. And I thought, oh, that's a bit weird. And so I open it and it says, basically, you know, um, this is my name and you should know that your father has a child with me and she's X years old and this is her name. Oh my God. Yeah. She has your blood and she has your name and here are some pictures. And, and the worst part was I actually thought it was a joke. I just couldn't compute that it was real. And it took me a really long time to actually fully accept that it was real. And I remember calling... I think I couldn't get through to my dad because my dad lives abroad. And so I called my mum and I think she called him. I can't remember, but we basically ended up the three of us on a line Did your mum know? No, no, no. None of us knew. And also, it was also about timing because she was born. So my dad's daughter was born shortly after my mum's daughter was born, who I consider my sister. And obviously my sister, as I've spoken about, was born very, very disabled. So I think my dad was very conscious of the fact that there was this kid that my dad, because also I'll tell you the story, he he basically didn't even know that this child had been born. And so found out when basically like, I think, you know, the police or someone knocked on his door and said, You've, you're summoned at court for a paternity test. Um, oh my God. And, and this woman wants wants whatever it's called you know a monthly allowance kind of thing by the way you're 20 grand in debt for maintenance exactly for maintenance (laughs) and so they'd been through like this whole court process and it's 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 so funny because I actually remember when I look back I can see when it happened because there was a clear kind of um I felt a withdrawal of my dad from us Mm. he wasn't as present emotionally he was clearly there was just clearly stuff going on and we weren't really seeing him. And I remember, but I remember obviously I had no idea what was going on. And so I took it so personally. I must have been about 15 or 16 at the time. And just, just it felt so acutely personal. And so in a way, it was a bit of a relief to realize that there had been something going on. And at the same time, I just couldn't believe that this person who 
you, you think you know your parents. And so anyway, so I called my mum and we ended up on the phone together. And I was still, I still didn't think it was real. So I remember saying to my dad, daddy, you've got to be so careful. Like there are people saying all sorts of things, you know. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, I thought it was like some kind of scam. You know, when someone says like, send your iPhone to Nigeria to be yeah. repaired. I thought it was that kind of thing. <laughs> and he just started basically screaming. And um, Oh my God. Dad, yeah. there's haters out there, but you created them, so yeah. it was just so. But yeah, so I can I can completely. I wouldn't be too harsh on yourself because I think you know maybe you also needed time to kind of accept the reality of what you'd just been told mm. because it's so out there. I mean, I know for me at least, it took me a really long time to fully accept the situation. You know, I did to someone what that person did to you, as in message them on Facebook to tell them of an existence they didn't know about. Because, um, yeah, so, you know, obviously my dad died when I was a baby. He was murdered Mm. when I was like two. Mm. And um, he had two other children that didn't know I existed. And um, yeah, I know. So when I was a child, I found out all of this because I was at church, as I always was, on a Sunday with my mum. And my dad's mum was there. And she didn't like my mum because... I don't know, whatever. And um, my mum walked me up to my grandma and said, oh, you know, you remember me, this is Shannon, blah, blah, blah. And she put her fingers over the ears of my sister, um, my dad's other daughter, and said, this is hardly the place all the time. And so that evening, I I was probably about five, that evening I went home and mum told me, look, you have a brother and sister that don't know you exist and they will never know about you. Did, and did, I remember did, being... Sorry, did you have a relationship with your grandma? No, so not at all. Okay. It was it was very bizarre. I don't know. I've I've spoken to her in more recent years. We're, we're mm. just never going to have a relationship. The, the strange thing was, as a child... Everyone thinks you're cute and everyone loves you. Mm. And to suddenly be in a situation where it's like, oh, my dad's mum doesn't like me, the concept of me, and I have a brother and sister that don't know I exist, Mm. was all a bit alien and upsetting. But you Mm. learn to live with it. And I did spend, you know, a few years, maybe when my mum and my stepdad at the time were out of the house going through the yellow pages to see if I could find somebody with their names wow you know yeah when I look back but, now that seems so tragic but at the time it just seemed logical because I didn't know Facebook was going to come around you know mm. and when I was 18 I found my brother on Facebook and I sent him a message and I was like this is going to sound really off the fucking wall but <laughs> I know your dad is dead <laughs> because he's also my dad and wow. I'm your sister and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, he went to go and speak to his mom and got back to me. And he was like, this is insane. This is absolutely insane. I can't believe it. And, and I, it's, it's mad, all of that. But I mean, I think now in the modern day, things like this don't seem surprising to me. And when I'm speaking to people, maybe it's because I'm a criminal barrister and everybody mm. I seem to deal with has had a really difficult life. Mm. But I feel like now when people are sharing stories like this with me, I'm less and less surprised by things because I feel like everybody seems to have one of these stories, you know? I mean, what surprises me is is 
the lack of empathy on the adult's part because I mean and, and I imagine it would have actually in some ways been probably more challenging for your brother and and sister because they will have realized that everybody knew and never told them and that is a horrible horrible feeling the flip side being I remember being so resentful towards the woman who told me and it's different because she wasn't the child herself right but the way that she wrote to me was in a context where my dad has specifically told her, I don't want my kids knowing, or at least not until I'm ready to tell them. I mean, obviously, my dad didn't have a relationship with this woman. It was extremely acrimonious because um, mm. he kind of just got, you know, found out that this had happened. And so and, and I think he'd explained that we had this other sister who was very ill and it was all very traumatic. And so he said, basically, I don't want them them knowing and I'll tell them in my own time. So for her to go against his wishes, to email me in that way, to me was just... It's hell. selfish. It's selfish. I was like, because, you know, she must have known that she was basically going to blow up my relationship with my dad. Mm. And she then, I never replied. And so she sent me a second message on Facebook. She'd obviously seen that I'd seen it. And it basically said something like, I mean, it was so emotionally guilt tripping, but she basically said, you know, um, my daughter doesn't understand why she has a brother and sister who don't want her. And I remember thinking, you're psychotic wow. because what kind of parent would say that to their child to begin with? Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's so, and actually that is what determined me. And I, to this day, I've never actually met my dad's daughter. And I even call her my dad's daughter because I don't, I, I've never met her. Unfortunately, I just don't think with that kind of mother, you're going to grow up to be particularly. Mm balanced yeah 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 um, I mean I think it's just a situation where from my mum's perspective I cannot fault anything my mum has ever done you know I I can't imagine it's very easy to raise a child whose parent has been murdered and have them just understand it and know it from the off which I seem mm. to have always done you know I just always knew always understood and that was the position um I do think there's, I think it's strange to be in it. I think it's probably easy to get into a situation where you just didn't tell somebody something mm. for so long. But our policy in my family generally has always been, if you are just open with a child from the outset about their circumstances, then it can't come back to bite you later on. <laughs> and also we forget that kids are so intelligent. And they mm. understand everything. They know when you're lying. They know when there's something not quite right. Um, you yeah, know, I, I'm, I'm such a fan of, and actually, and that's why I always, I think that's also why I struggled even more was my parents have always been, or I thought very open and upfront with me. And there was, even as a young child, I was kind of treated like an adult and maybe modern psychology will say well, that's good or bad, but you were just, you know, there was a respect for my own kind of autonomy and understanding of a situation. And that's why even yeah. when I looked at, at what this woman, you know, even just by the content of her email to me about what she was telling this probably four-year-old at the time, you know, I remember thinking there were so many other ways like you could say to this child, you know what, your father has other children, but they're not ready to meet you because of, you know, because of whatever, but that's very different. I mean, it's subtle, but it's very different from saying they don't want you, you know? Mm. Why would you? She, um, mm. in that message to you, she mm. piled her pain onto you. 
mm. and made it your fault or mm. your responsibility some way. Mm. And I'm always very cautious about being around people that do that to others. When they're feeling pain or they're feeling mm. hurt, they don't recognize it. And I think that's dangerous. If you can't understand your own pain to process it, you end up piling piling it onto people who have their own pains to deal with and their own situations to deal with. And I think being around people like that is absolutely toxic. Mm. I mean, it's so interesting because I've been dating a man who is divorced. And it's funny because I grew up, obviously my parents are divorced and they each remarried or have been with their partners for such a long time. It's as if they were married. Mm. And I very readily accepted my mum's second husband, but really struggled with my dad's partner, who I now adore. But for a very long time, I don't know why I just, I struggled. My current partner is divorced and has a son. And it's a whole other dynamic. I mean, first of all, this person is coming to the table with a very different kind of, it's a different situation. But also I was kind of looking into it and I was just thinking how in modern in the modern world, there's so little, it's so common nowadays. I mean, half the population divorce and Mm. many go on to remarry or to have, you know, or to date or whatever it is, but no one speaks about it. And and the new partner is basically almost always the evil stepmom or the evil stepdad. (laughs) And and never, I'm serious. And I was, you know, one of the people I was in Dubai with is on his second marriage. And he was joking that he used to actually sign birthday cards to his stepkids as love from evil stepdad. There's very, it's not spoken about. It's not spoken about from, I mean, obviously there's some emphasis on the child on how it would be hard for the child to accept someone new. And obviously when I look back at my own childhood and I can so readily see that, but then now I have so much more compassion for my dad's partner because it's, you know, it's how do you slot in? How do you deal with the dynamics with their ex-wife or ex-husband? How do you deal with dynamics with the child? You know, how actually, like I listened to this podcast and this woman was like, I don't like my partner's children, you know, they're, yeah. Or like, or then if you have your own children with this person, there's so much and it's so not spoken about. And it's just kind of, I I almost want to say so EastEnders, the way we deal with it, you know, it's just kind of like Mm. find someone, demonize them, make them the bad person. The weird thing is, these are the narratives that we have been taught since we were children. Like one of my favorite films was The Parent Trap. Mm. And, you know, the dad's new girlfriend is seen to be, I think they call her Cruella DeVille in the (laughs) film. We are constantly taught that that new person is, you know, the problem. Because we have these weird, old-fashioned traditions of marriage that things are supposed to last forever and whatever. But people change and people evolve and people break up. You know, one of my friends who's about to get married said to me, um, she's in her late 30s. And she said, well, statistically, I've avoided my first divorce. So, (laughs) (laughs) but also, it's true. Also, we love to blame. And I mean, I've been there and I've done it before, but it's so much easier to look at someone new and think, oh, this is your fault. Even though they weren't even, you know, anywhere close to the situation. But you look at the new person, you think, oh, this is, you know, blah, 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 blah. Because I think there is such an inherent sense of failure, which there shouldn't be. But maybe there's failure, maybe there's shame, maybe there's guilt. 
And I think it's just so uncomfortable for most people, and let's face it, me included sometimes, to face our own shortcomings or to just acknowledge that something's ended. I mean, it is much, I mean, I've, for example, I've both left people and been left. And I always found leaving so much harder because it would come with guilt of mm-hmm. what if I've made the wrong decision or, you know, I've inflicted this pain, whereas as, as painful as it is being left, I would kind of have this almost peace of thinking, well, there was nothing I could do, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think we I just think like to blame people. You are absolutely preaching to the choir on this because, I mean, I don't sound off on the internet about work very much or at all, but I genuinely think that one of the things at work that I deal with a lot is we love to just push the blame onto other people. We love to mm. think that we are in the right and that if something's gone wrong, it's nothing to do with us generally. And I do think that as a broad concept, when we're dealing with criminals and criminal law, society loves to demonize people accused of crime. Mm. And I think it comes from this weird misunderstanding or worry that we have that you're looking at somebody who is a human being. They have Mm. the same heart, the same lungs, the same makeup as you, and yet they've murdered someone. And I think we are so scared to be like, this is one of us who has done something dreadful Mm. that we like to turn them into a monster in our minds. And we like to do the whole, there is something so bad about this person. They must be, you know, something other than human. They need to be demonized. And I think that that, if we're going to go off on one about this, is Mm. a fundamental flaw about how society operates. Because instead of trying to understand people, we try to blame, we try to otherize, we try to demonize in order to make ourselves feel better about our own shortcomings and the prospect that actually all of us are, all of us have this horrible capability to do dreadful things. Mm. And we like to pretend that doesn't exist by otherizing people. And um, I think it's a, a perfectionist streak of, you know, because there's so much shame, almost like, oh, I don't want to be found out that I might oh, think these things or I might do these things. And there was an amazing book, which I really recommend I mean, I, I love Esther Perel. I'm always going on about her, but she wrote a book about <laughs> cheating and affairs called The State of Affairs. Have you read it? I haven't, no. It is phenomenal. She says, I mean, she says so many things and I'll let you read the book, but one of them is that infidelity pre-existed marriage. I mean, it is mm. one of the longest, most common, long-standing human behaviors And yet it is totally taboo and not spoken about, unless it is, again, in this kind of blaming pariah situation. And what's fascinating is she's a relationships therapist and she works with, you know, all ages, all nationalities, across genders, across sexuality. And the book is broken into the perspective of how the affair kind of impacts everyone. So being the mistress, being the Mm. husband or the wife, being the child, being the friend, being the parents, being even the barista, you know? And, <laughs> and what's so interesting is, is at least what I took from it is, you know, because I think someone who's cheated on tends to take it very personally. But she says yeah. that in her work, as much as it might be personal, it's never personal. It is always about that person looking for something that they feel that they've lost inside themselves. Mm-hmm. And a lot of her work. And so first, so first of all, you kind of, 
if it's happened to you, you, you realize it hasn't actually happened to you. It's really this own person's problem and behavior. And then it's about looking, if you want to kind of maintain the relationship after thinking, right, whatever this person was looking for outside, it's realizing that that was always in them and bringing it back into the relationship. And she says, you know, she wouldn't wish an affair on anyone the same way she wouldn't wish anyone to get cancer, but it can act as a kind of um, a catalyst for fundamental change. And you'll never be the same and you'll never have the same relationship. And I'm sure it's probably impacted you and how you might approach new relationships, but it is, there is so much potential for growth there. But I think really the key for me was realizing it's, it's not personal. Even if people think it's personal, even if the person doing it's like, well, you're this thing, blah, 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 blah. So I had to go, no, take responsibility. This is your choice, your decision, your behavior, your emotion. Mm. You are the one feeling this way. You know, I love this topic because cheating, infidelity, it's such a taboo thing to actually get into and talk about properly. And I love sort of delving into topics like that that are difficult to talk about because I've been cheated on. I think really digging deep into those emotions makes you realize, actually, you're not a piece of shit, generally. You're a human being. And the way that we have relationships with others is actually all that matters. There's a song, I can't mm. remember what it's called right now, but and in it, there's like a little monologue in the background that says something along the lines of when you're on your deathbed, you're not going to be like, oh, I wish I'd worked more. I wish I did this. I wish I did that. You're probably going to analyze the relationships you had with other people because really that is where we get our source of affection, mm. the need, the validation. We find it in each other as human beings. And I think it's so interesting to see human relationships at play, whichever side of the bench you're on. Mm. I try. I try my best not to be scorned and bitter because I really love human relationships. Like I mm. read books like they're going out of fashion. I fucking love reading love stories. Mm. And um, I'm reading a book at the moment actually called Heartsick by Jesse Stevens. It's brilliant. And it's got, uh, they're true stories of falling in love, what happens after it ends. And one of them is this uh, university student called Patrick who falls in love with somebody who's in his class and he's he's never really had a relationship before he's a virgin I think and he talks about the way you observe somebody when you are infatuated with them you know the way that you look at them the way that you remember every etch of their face the way they scratch their nose or whatever it is mm. and reading this book is just it brings out of me all of those feelings I've ever felt when you've looked at someone and just been so in love with them that you can't get over their sort of human beauty and it's wonderful I love feeling like that and it's interesting to me that I've recently been through a situation where I've felt hurt but mm. at the same time I'm just obsessed with human relationships I love it like I love feeling like that when I read this book I love all of the reminders I get from all of the times I've looked at someone and you know, they've touched my hand and it's almost as though it's burned me. I can feel it later, you know, like it's gorgeous. You know, what a, what a remarkable way to feel. It's great. It's funny as long because as you have it in perspective, I think. Mm, well, one of the things, one of the first talks, I think it is the first talk. I think this is the talk that kind of made Esther Perel fa famous 
is a TED talk called How to Sustain Desire in Long-Term Relationships. Mm. And what you just said was the answer people gave when they said, when do you find your partner the most attractive? And it was essentially when they kind of become unknown again for a, mi for a minute or not as yeah. familiar. So you see them, you know, at a party across the room talking to someone new and this person is enraptured by them. And you realize that as much as you know this person, there's still, there's still something more to discover. And it's basically a, a constant dance between closeness, you know, enough closeness to have emotional mm. proximity, but enough distance for the flame to be fanned kind of thing. But oh, it's absolutely. funny because coming back to the, to the infidelity chat, I mean, it's, it is so common. As a child, I was very black and white about it. And I just didn't really understand why people would do it. It's just like, if you don't want to be with someone, just fucking tell them before you go find someone else, you know? Yeah. And then with age, I became a little softer and more understanding of the human complexity. But I've actually kind of gone back to my child self a little bit because I was maybe more understanding of that in a framework of people being in their early 20s and maybe a little lost, a little confused and just generally trying to find their footing. And I also believe we learn from our mistakes, but I am less tolerant of it. And even yeah. with people around me, you know, and I have like, I have a very good friend, they're single, but they were pursuing something. I mean, it's not just one actually, I know several who are pursuing something with someone who isn't single. And I honestly, I just don't understand it. I don't understand because for me, it's not just about, oh, you know, what you want is this is respecting the sanctity of someone else's relationship, but also mm. loving and respecting yourself enough. Like, why would you want to be with someone who isn't available? hundred percent. Why would you 100%. Even hurt yourself in that situation? And I remember saying to someone, I was like, listen, if you go through with this, it's not just about you and what you might feel. I was like, this person's going to go home to someone else. And you have no idea what chaos may ensue, how they'll feel, what they'll tell or mm. what they won't tell. And, you know, I just, yeah, I've become, I, I actually find it really hard. And, and I, I think it's a fine line. Like on the one hand, you know, who am I to judge? All we can do is love and be compassionate. And at the same time, you know, when it's a core value, it's just like, well. I think the difficulty is, yes, we are, you know, people who we're human beings. But at the same time, at some stage in your life, whether it's in your late 20s, early 30s, 40s, whenever, you have to get to a position where you start respecting other people to a proper level mm. because, Yes, have your fun, mess around, do stupid things. But it's actually very unpleasant to inflict pain on other people. Mm. And I think that if you are, particularly women, I have to say this, if a woman comes to you and asks you for the truth about something that has been going on with their partner, tell them the fucking truth, you know? Mm. I just think for decades... I say decades because I've only been alive for decades, but my experience <laughs> for decades, probably hundreds of years, men have managed to get away with so fucking much due to the silence of women. And I do think that there are certain situations where we need to call it out when we see it, particularly in our older years, because being hurt is not pleasant. <laughs> and I know, but the thing is, I kind of disagree, though. And okay. 
here's why. I mean, yes, but the context of human relationships is so different. I mean, our generation, maybe our parents' generation, were probably one of the, the first to genuinely marry for love or to have an emphasis on emotional relationships. You know, before, mm. like as much as yes, silence of women, and I'm not denying that whole historical aspect, but also we can't look at those relationships through the prism of how we experience relationships today because it, it simply wasn't the case. Mm. That wasn't your role. You know, you- If, if you mm. had got with a guy who you mm. then found out had a partner or a family or whatever, Oh, Christ, and later yeah. down the line, later down the line, maybe a year or so later, mm. the partner came to you and said, look, I might be going crazy, but I've seen some messages. They're old. Can you just tell me if anything went on? Number one, would you reply? And number two, if you would, what would you say? <sighs> <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, is I actually, as I'm saying all of this and I'm being quite judgmental of it, I also know people who are the mistress or, you know, is that even a male word for a mistress, a male mistress? I think so. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, Mis- mistro? <laughs> <laughs> mistro? But, but I know people who have been so unhappy in their marriage and um, and maybe because they're older, or for, for cultural or religious reasons, actually weren't able to divorce. And so, mm. you know, I, but I love that person. And I know that there's not like, I, I suppose in a way it doesn't come with, it's just a shit situation, but it's a situation they're in and, and there is genuine love. And, and we can't, you know, forget that side either. It's so individual, but if, but the truth is, I just wouldn't even let myself be in that situation. I honestly can't tell you if I'd reply or not reply because if I knew that this person was with someone else, there is, I just wouldn't do it to myself. It's happened to me once in my life where I was pursued by someone. They told me they were single. Actually happened to me twice. And yeah, and then it turns out they weren't single. And what was extraordinary, I mean, the balls on some of these people. So one guy, (laughs) this is just insane. One guy basically was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm single. Well, he didn't just come up to me and say, I'm single, but you know. <laughs> anyway. Hello, it was, I'm single. Nice yeah, it, it was established that he was single. I then went to a party with him that he invited me to. And his ex-girlfriend was there. I knew who she was because, you know, we live in the modern day and age. I've obviously looked at your Facebook pictures. I've obviously looked at your Instagram. I've done my research kind of thing. I know your holiday to Corfu in 2005. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which reminds me of another story. Little tangent. I was once really into this person and stalked them all the way back to like literally 2005. <laughs> Took all these screenshots, was on the phone to one of my best friends. I was like, oh my God, I've got to tell you about this person I met. Sent her all the pictures. And she's like, the pictures still haven't come through. And I realized I sent them to him because <gasps> as I was talking about him, <laughs> his name was on my mind. It was mortifying and it was actually oh my god I know the delete function had just started on whatsapp this is like a few years ago and so I managed to delete them all but anyway and and just made up some story but it was mortifying but anyway back to the main story I'm at this party and I see this girl and so I I basically play dumb to her but I go straight up to her and I say oh you know what's your name what are you doing here and she goes oh I'm engaged to so-and-so I'm so-and-so's fiance 
And I said, sorry. <laughs> She's like, yeah, you know, this person, the one who's like organized the party. And it was, it was, it was such odd behavior. Like why invite me? You're going to be fine. I, I don't know. Like clearly this person has severe mental issues, but I, I know who this person is because you've told me about this before. It's yeah. <laughs> interesting to hear it. Like I'm, I'm excited to hear this again because it's yeah. just, well, the I audacity, then, the fucking the audacity, audacity of it. The audacity. So I then confronted him and I was like, well, actually no worse. He then kind of proceeded to flirt with me in this situation. I was just like, what is going on? And so, you know, eventually leave, whatever. And I confront him afterwards and I just said like, what's your deal, basically? He basically was like, oh, I couldn't actually leave her because she has like mental health issues, blah, blah, blah. And I realized that all along he'd been saying she had mental health issues. And I realized he was the crazy one. She was perfectly normal. She was very balanced. He was the one who was mental. And I remember I was like in my early 20s. And I remember just looking at him and saying, you know what? I am worth more than your confusion. Just standing up and walking away. And that was such a, that was quite a pivotal moment for me. And that kind of followed through into my subsequent relationships, which is I am worth more than your confusion. You can be confused. You can, that's fine, but figure your shit out, you know? Mm. But so it comes back to your initial question, which is what would I do in that situation? And so when I have been in that situation, albeit inadvertently, I hated, I hated it. I hated feeling that way. I hated having been made to be that person, you know, non-consensually. And I just, at least now where I'm at now in my life, I just wouldn't, I just, you know, I wouldn't go there. 